The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. Good morning, and thank you for joining us on The Blunt Post with Vic. You will hear my interview with Girard. Ratavosian, who is a House candidate for Congressman Adam Schiff's seat. Congressman Schiff is running for Senate uh, next year. So uh, District 30 is open. And uh, later on the show, you will hear my interview with cannabis attorney Allison Margolin. Born and raised in Hollywood, Jirai Ratavosian graduated from UCLA and has a doctoral degree in public health from Johns Hopkins. President Biden appointed him as the most senior Armenian-American official at the State Department. Uh, He has served as the legislative director to Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Uh, He's been a grassroots community organizer and an activist. Uh, And now he is running for the House of Representatives, District 30 in California, which is the open seat vacated by Congressman Schiff, or will be, as Congressman Schiff is running for for Senate, for uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein's seat. Good morning, Jirai. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? Hi, Vic. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Thanks for um, uh, taking the time, and congrats on your uh, campaign for Congress, District 30. Uh, How's that going? Thanks so much. Yeah, it's been just a little over a month and it's it's quite exhilarating. It's been, um, you know, nonstop uh, talking to voters, uh, attending events, uh, being on the phone, fundraising, of course. Uh, I feel really, really energized. I haven't felt this energized in a long time, actually. So it's going well. That's awesome. Now, I heard that you you had this great job at the State Department, but you had so much passion to uh, to do this uh, at this very time that you sort of quit and decided to um, to start your campaign for Congress, I know of similar decisions people have made and have you know gone on to do great things. Uh, what what led you to that? And uh, uh, yeah, just tell me all about it. Yeah, well, thanks, Vic. Yeah, I did. I did have a good job at the State Department. I was. An appointee for for President Biden, I, I was very active in the Biden campaign, and I had a chance to serve on the um, what they call the presidential transition team when you go from one president to another. Uh, and then and then soon after that, when the administration started, they offered me a job in the State Department. It was a, a dream of mine to 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 be able to to work in the State Department, and and I and I took it up, and um, I was there for just about two years. Uh, and uh, involved in a lot of global health security issues, uh, issues related to pandemics, uh, the COVID pandemic, uh, HIV AIDS, gender equality. So worked with a lot of foreign governments around uh, these kinds of issues. It was a great job. I, when I learned about the the uh, this race and 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 um, Congressman Adam Schiff uh, declaring his interest to 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 run for Senate. 
um, I realized it was one of those openings that happen very rarely, where you have a chance to be able to serve uh, the community that you're from. And this is my hometown, uh, it, you know, in Congress to, to fight for their issues. Um, I, I began making some phone calls and inquiring about the race and who's in and who's out. And, um, you know, as, as an Armenian myself, you know, and this district includes the most number of Armenians, I assumed that there would be many Armenians in the race, um, because I believe there should be. And was quickly surprised to find out that there weren't, and and many were uh, pointing at me to enter the race. So, you know, I had to to look at um, uh, where things stood with, with regards to my, to my job. I had to talk to my fiance, I had to talk to my parents and family, and uh, and really ultimately decided that uh, this was an opportunity for me to continue my lifelong uh, commitment to service uh, in a kind of capacity that was uh, very familiar to me because I had already worked in Congress. Yeah, th that is after Congressman Schiff starting to run for Senate, that there would be no other Armenian but yourself in it. So that begs the question. So Congressman Schiff is, is a beloved uh, uh, congressman from District 30. Uh, his his district has a, a a huge sort of a number of Armenian uh, Armenian American constituents as well as LGBTQ because it, it goes down to West Hollywood and you're also happen to be gay and you're Armenian American uh, which is sort of um, I guess it's a blessing in, in in that sense that you know the community you know the communities that you're going to serve aside from uh, everyone else. So I just have to sort of put you on the spot for now. Filling Congressman Schiff's shoes is not an easy one, right? <laughs> hey, absolutely. What does is, what is that uh, look like for you or feel like for you? Yeah, no. Well, thank you for framing the question that way. I, you know, I think um, we're really lucky to have a member of Congress like Adam Schiff, not only to fight for issues, you know, in, in, in this district, in this district, just for your your listeners, it includes Burbank, Glendale. Um, you mentioned West Hollywood. It includes all of Hollywood, parts of Pasadena, uh, as well as Sunland and, and Tahunga is where I and, and I lived in, in Sunland for for ten years. Um, he's been a superb representative of the communities in the district. But we've had the added bonus that he's been a foreign policy leader for us. He's been a democracy defender for our country. You know the way he stood up against Donald Trump and, and the insurrectionists, uh, the way he stood up for Armenian issues, for other foreign policy uh, issues, is something you don't usually see in a lot of members of Congress. So with him, we had that unique uh, unique um, uh, skill set that that he brought to, to the issue. So there are big shoes to fill. Um, I've worked in Congress uh, myself um, for four years. I've worked at the State Department, and I, as I said, and, and, and I have a, a lot of foreign policy experience working um, in the in the private sector as well, working with foreign governments to be able to to create partnerships for for uh, HIV and hepatitis. And so I have that unique um, set of experiences that that are similar to what um, uh, we've we've been accustomed to in 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 this congressional seat. and and I'm hoping to bring that experience that I have from Washington, my foreign policy experience, and as you said, my lived experience as being, uh, openly gay by being um, a son of immigrants, by, by being Armenian. I, I speak Armenian fluently. I went to three Armenian schools in Los Angeles. I'm bringing all of that to the table. And, and uh, we've seen firsthand, uh, we saw it last week with the Supreme Court decisions, uh, and I'm happy to talk about that. But we've seen firsthand 
why representation matters. Representation comes in all different forms, uh, but I believe strongly that at the end of the day, Congress and our government has to look like the people it's trying to serve. And and yeah. this race is one important part of that story. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you're listening to my interview with Jirai Batavosian, uh, who is a candidate for uh, U.S. House of Representatives District 30, uh, which is uh, Congressman Schiff's district, uh, as Congressman Schiff is running for Senate. And we're just talking about Jirai's plans, his agenda, different positions that he has, and such. Yeah, you also bring in, I mean, you went to CLA, which is, you know, not yeah. an easy school to get into. And you have a doctorate degree from uh, Johns Hopkins uh, in public health, um, which is, you know, it's always top one of the top five issues that uh, is in, that are important to uh, to any voter. So let's sort of sort of look at it from a different uh, perspective. Looking at District 30, right, because nothing can ever be perfect. What do you think the weaknesses are? What do you think that you would um, sort of uh, improve on as it is now? Yeah, no, uh, there there are a lot of issues, Vic. And, you know, I when I entered the race, I talked a lot about um, how I am my grandfather's American dream, right? We People talk about the American dream a lot, and that means something, that means different things to different people. I want to acknowledge that. But for my grandfather, um, he and his family... My mom and dad, they all came to this country um, looking for a second chance. My mom's side, they escaped um, civil war in Lebanon. My, my father's side, they were anti-communist activists and they got exiled to Siberia, which is where my father was born. And and they they ultimately escaped and came, came to the United States. They came to California, they came to Hollywood. And um, so America really gave them a second chance at life. And they, my parents worked hard, we were, we were working class families. Uh, my parents worked two jobs actually to put me uh, and my sister through school. I I have fond memories of of my grandparents actually raising me and my and my my grandfather picking me up from Alex Bilibo School in Hollywood, and that's because my parents were working until six seven p.m. Right, and but for them it worked. They worked hard. They they we we took advantage of of of, of their sacrifices. We went to good schools. Um, I was able to benefit from. Um, from um, uh, federal uh, grants because uh, because we were low income. Uh, I took student loans and I got a great education. I went to UCLA, go Bruins, as you as you mentioned. I think um, and 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 further 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 education as well. And and I got great jobs. But that story is becoming harder and harder for people to 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 experience. Uh, and and there are a number of challenges, even though uh, we've come uh, you know very far. I, Homelessness is top of mind for me and and many constituents in this district. Um, housing crisis is um, is is a major major issue. It's, it obviously contributes to to the homelessness crisis, but but many families are trying to buy homes and they can't. My own sister is struggling to buy uh, buy their first home because costs have gone up. Um, the cost of living in general has gone up with groceries and gas. Um, we have an educational crisis. Students are burdened with student loans. Uh, we saw what the Supreme Court did last week, and and now they're struggling to to catch up from COVID and 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 figure out how to support their own families. I think also um, I'm, I want to be a champion for small businesses. I've talked to a lot of small business owners. 
Um, and I believe that small businesses are the heartbeat of cities. Uh, and 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 they're they're struggling with crime. They're struggling with um, rebounding from COVID. And we need to create uh, incentives to be able to 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 revitalize the way businesses are supporting our cities and how our cities are functioning as well. And I think w- when we do these things, um, uh, we'll be able to feel uh, the, the benefits of how Congress um, can can work for ordinary people. That's not happening right now. I think Congress is out of touch. Uh, with 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 everyday Americans. When I entered the race, people said, "Are you crazy? You're leaving the State Department to go to Congress? Congress? What's Congress is broken? Congress doesn't work for me." And and that was really heart heartbreaking because, as dysfunctional as Congress can be, I'm not cynical about what it can be. You know, and I've seen Congress work. I've been part part of um, congressional initiatives that have been bipartisan for HIV, for foreign policy. So I've seen how it can work for people. And that's the kind of experience that I want to bring to be able to address some of these challenges that I mentioned. That's a hefty, hefty uh, agenda. Certainly it's, it's it all, um, I mean, all of it is so important. The disintegration of the middle class, you know, the, the fact yeah. that middle class, working class, have a hard time purchasing a home in LA. An average three-bedroom house in LA is upwards of a million. And I'm not talking about in top-notch neighborhoods or a brand new house or anything like that. And yeah. that's just, uh, it's becoming more and more, the American dream is becoming uh, un- almost unreachable. Uh, you'd have to be in upper middle class and more like, you know, 250,000 and more and higher uh, income bracket. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you're listening to my interview with Jirai Batavosian, uh, who is a candidate for uh, U.S. House of Representatives District 30, uh, which is uh, Congressman Schiff's district, uh, as Congressman Schiff is running for Senate. And we're just talking about Jirai's plans, his agenda, different positions that he has and such. So let's just going back. I mean, I, I wasn't going to ask you this, but it occurred to me that I would rem- I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this. You know, as I think some of our listeners know as well, with um, with the current situation in Artsakh, formerly known as Nagorno-Karabakh, where Azerbaijan has uh, is essentially carrying out a what I call the resumption of the Armenian genocide by holding hostage about 120,000 Armenians, indigenous Armenians, 30,000 of them children. And regardless mm-hmm. of, of all the quote-unquote calls for them to uh, unblock the blockade and such from different nations and leaders and International Court of Justice, it's just not happening. You know, Azerbaijan's oil and gas and lobby power uh, and such, and, and and their allies, such as Turkey, they have a lot more influence. And so I'm just wondering, as someone who used to work for the State Department and has been appointed by President Biden, why yeah. haven't we heard a word from President Biden about this when he's been very vocal about the invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, no, it's a it's a very fair question, Vic. And, and I think that we all have to ask ourselves, this question as we consider, you know, the, this upcoming election. I think um, this 2024 election and, and this district in particular, because of the fact that there are the most number of Armenians 
in this district than any other district in the country. This is the most important election for 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 the future of Armenia and for Armenian issues that we that that Armenians care about. Um, that some of that is foreign policy, and but Armenians are also business owners. Armenians are teachers. Armenians are um, uh, they're they're coaches. You know, they 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 work in hospitals, and so it's foreign policy is not just the only issue. But right now, it is a difficult time for Armenia, and it's on top of mind for 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 many of us and and for our allies as well. Um, you know, I think what's happening now is that there is a, and I was just in Washington, and and I uh, and I attended a reception with Secretary Blinken and, and and talked to him about Armenia. By the way, this I haven't talked about this publicly yet, but this was just you know a few days ago, four or five days ago. I think what's happening now is that the White House is looking at the State Department to be able to lead um, this peace agreement between between the parties, but. But we're we're all very concerned about what what that could look like, and we, we've we've seen um, what what some actors have already uh, uh, you know talked about in terms of how that agreement can come together, and and I think I think there's there's still a lot to 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 to, to unfold. Um, I think that's why you see the State Department in a, in a leadership role, and 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 the White House playing a behind the scenes um, supportive role uh, right now. I was. But it the- seems like the the State Department is just. Uh, determined to send 120,000 Armenians to the slaughter, which history has shown us uh, over and over again that any Armenians living in Turkey or under rule of Azerbaijan are either killed or expelled. Uh, And yet somehow uh, we're hearing these fantastical uh, hopes, as the U.S. ambassador to Armenia said, we hope that Armenians can live uh, safely under Azerbaijani rule. Well, <laughs> would you take hope uh, and go live there? So uh, states, the state of Artsakh were invaded, Artsakh having been invaded a year and a half before Ukraine, the language um, for Ukraine is so much more, it's louder, it's different. And for Armenia, it's it's muted and it's, um, it's biased because when you do both sides, um, that's a form of bias. So, um, you know, I mean, I voted for President Biden uh, and I am deeply, deeply disappointed by his administration. Uh, Secretary Blinken has, uh, I think the harshest thing he said uh, about the situation where Armenians are being slaughtered is that he is deeply concerned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, Vic, I just, let me just add a couple of things. And I generally agree with, with, with your characterization, I, I wanted to add that, you know, when I was on the transition team, I was part of the policy team that took directive from President Biden directly on the Armenian genocide recognition. And uh, the irony is that 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 while that was a big move on behalf of the administration, there's still a long way to go. Right. So I know that President Biden himself was invested in the Armenian issues back then. And I hope that we um, we can reinsert that kind of um, uh, attention that we had at that election, you know, now, um, because I agree with you that the uh, the Aliyev government doesn't stand for peace. Um, hope is not something you you sign a peace agreement on, and and we need an international framework uh, to to monitor the peace. I think, but even with President Biden, I mean, he recognized the Armenian genocide. I think that was inevitable because uh, the House and the Senate had recognized it in 2019 overwhelmingly. The Senate unanimously, and the House almost unanimously. Uh, I think uh, that was a campaign promise. But unfortunately, a week after he uh, uh, recognized the Armenian genocide, 
he turned around and waived Section 907 of the Freedom Act and gave Azerbaijan $100 million for uh, so-called military um, aid, knowing that that's going to be used uh, to kill Armenians and, uh, you know, and did it again the next year. Um, so I'm, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm just, I guess, uh, you know, I, I wanted to see if you had any insight knowledge of, of that. I mean, we know about politics, but any insight knowledge as to like his, uh, you know, his, uh, his, uh, just being so quiet about it. We haven't heard a word from him. Well, you know, what I would say is we don't have an Armenian at the table, right? And I think that really makes a difference. Uh, we don't have, and, and this is this is partly why I'm running. I, I think it's, we need an Armenian voice in Congress. Uh, we need that kind of Armenian leadership to be able to drive these issues. And and I think in Washington, Vic, what I've seen is um, other governments or present themselves in a very organized fashion in terms of how they lobby government, how they have... They lobby think tanks in Washington. Uh, you know, Armenians have to really look at the way we we, we present and show up uh, in Washington, and that includes all different levels of government, including the Congress and the White House. And that's why I, I I've always tried to support you know the fellowships that ANCA has and others that create pathways for Armenians to come into the center of power. That's how we ultimately try to change the, that kind of calculation that you're that you're talking about. Um, they, yeah, and I think. Um, I think I think I'm I'm optimistic that that we we can and I think we have to show when I, what I told Secretary Blinken is that this district has uh, the most number of Armenians and 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 they need to understand that Armenians uh, were politically active were were civically engaged were were voters and and we have to demonstrate our power but if we don't do that then then we we take advantage we we lose the advantage that we have to be able to, to be able to shape policy in that way that's why the election is so important. Absolutely. This this is a very important election. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you're listening to my interview with Jirai Batavosian, uh, who is a candidate for uh, U.S. House of Representatives District 30, uh, which is uh, Congressman Schiff's district, uh, as Congressman Schiff is running for Senate. And we're just talking about Jirai's plans, his agenda, different positions that he has and such. So um, what are what are some of the things like what's coming up for you in this campaign? Well, I, so I just had my first month and I, I had um, an ambitious fundraising goal for me in my first month. And I wanted to show uh, that I could fundraise at the, you know, at the same rate that some of the other candidates were were were, were raising, including some of the. Um, the ones who entered in, in in January, and I'm happy to say that we announced that I blew through that fundraising goal, and so we have a lot of momentum. Um, one thing I wanted to mention that I didn't earlier is that I'm going to be engaged a lot on healthcare issues. I have a doctoral degree in public health, as you mentioned. I've worked on HIV my whole life. Uh, I've worked on uh, on on infectious diseases my whole life, and and I want to be able to um, to visit. Um, um, hospitals. I want to visit the LA Gay and Lesbian Center. I've already engaged with them to understand how they're addressing some of the housing crisis uh, uh, in 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 West Hollywood. Uh, and I want to 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 put healthcare issues on the map and and, and really bring together physicians, nurses, hospitals uh, to be able to unpack um, uh, some of these these issues. So I plan to do that in the coming weeks. I'm going to be meeting with. 
um, a lot of Armenian community leaders as well in, in different cities. I'm going to be attending Rotary uh, meetings. I used to be a Rotarian myself, so I want to engage with business leaders to understand what some of the challenges are for small businesses. Uh, and I also, um, I'm also continuing to fundraise, of course, as you know, that's the, all of this is just a dream. It takes unless money. You, it takes unless money. money. It's the reality. Exactly. So a lot of community engagement, a lot of 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 creating opportunities for people to ask me questions about what I stand for and and my background. I want to just put myself out there and make myself available uh, to as many different communities and people as possible. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK ninety point seven FM. I am your host Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Jirai Batavosian, uh, who is a candidate for uh, U.S. House of Representatives District. 30, uh, which is uh, Congressman Schiff's district, uh, as Congressman Schiff is running for Senate. And we're just talking about GRI's plans, his agenda, different positions that he has, and such. And uh, if people want to volunteer or help or get in touch, uh, if you can t- tell us your website. Oh, yeah, sure. Thank you. It's, so it's uh, the website is gerarforca.com. That's my first name, J-I-R-A-I-R, 4CA.com. You can also uh, just Google it. The website will come up. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Is it number four or F-O-R? F-O-R. 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 So, okay. A-I-R, F-O-R-C-A.com. Gerard4CA.com. Excellent. Also on Twitter, Instagram, and 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 we, we're, we're, we're building a grassroots team. I'm not surrounded by... High-powered consultants. By this is this is this this campaign is is powered by people. I've been overwhelmed by by um, the number of volunteers that have offered to help me and and that, that are part of, of of all this community engagement that I'm doing, including a lot of leaders here in LA as well. That's fantastic. Is there a question I should have asked that I missed, or anything you want to add? Let's talk about let's talk about Supreme Court. Is that a topic that you want to uncover, or is that too complicated? Absolutely. I mean, what's there to talk about? <laughs> I'm being facetious. I mean, Donald Trump, you know, you had you had President Obama who had a year to appoint someone and the Republicans uh, bullied him and said, oh, you don't have enough time. Uh, Donald Trump uh, appointed four mega conservatives right. who have done some of the most unfathomable things, yeah. including, you know, including overturning Roe versus Wade and uh, attacking all kinds of uh, LGBTQ rights that we've fought so hard to to get for the last 20, 30 years. Um, and and this latest one that you were mentioning, obviously, uh, makes it okay to a certain degree for businesses to refuse service to LGBTQ Americans. Yeah, no, I, I think, well, thank you for reminding the listeners about the history of how we got here, right? And and, and I do believe the Supreme Court right now is is hijacked and, and broken. And um, so I support a lot of the reform efforts that Adam Schiff and others have been putting forward in terms of term limits, um, ethics rules, uh, and, and expanding the court as well. Uh, these decisions are are impacting everyday everyday people, um, and, and including m- myself, as you mentioned. And 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 people need to to really pay attention. And 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 again, um, look to make sure that you're registered to vote. Uh, if you're not registered to vote, make sure to do that as soon as possible. And and engage in the civic process. I believe um, that that we can make the Supreme Court work better. We can make Congress work better. But if you're just on the st- sidelines, that's not how democracy can work, right? I'm getting married in October, Vic, and 
What my partner and I had to do this past weekend is call every single one of our vendors to make sure that they were not pulling out of our gay wedding. I mean, how how sad is that? And, and ridiculous. I'm, it's ridiculous that you have to do that. Right. And so that's not the, the kind of society that anyone wants to live in. And when one of us is discriminated against, we all are discriminated against. And so we still have a long way to go, even though there's been tremendous progress to, to celebrate. Sometimes it's sort of not on the top of uh, average Americans' mind, but their impact um, is is really powerful. Yeah, uh, and what we're seeing is uh, is really sad as to what's happening to uh, so much of hard earned, you know, hard earned um, rights and freedom and progress that that we're seeing just sort of vanish. Um, and I'm sure, and I'm sure eventually. Uh, we will overturn those as well. But um, in the meantime, as you said, it impacts a lot of people in a negative way. You and others, we just got to push and, uh, and not get caught up in the you know, politics as usual, which so much of Congress is stuck yeah. um, in that. But um, I wanted to also share that my family and I, we watched, um, we watched your, your documentary, Vic. Thanks for for being in Armenia and telling that story um, so that more people can be um, educated about it and, and, and continue to put the pressure on our government and our elected officials at all, at all levels. So thanks for what you're doing as well. Oh, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah. My, my uh, documentary motherland, you know, we had a congressional screening for that in September of last year. Hmm. And I actually sent the, the screener link the password to all members of Congress, both house and Senate, and uh, nice, you know, you just hope that you make some sort of a difference, even if it's just like an inch, you know, and I had interviewed seven members of Congress for that, uh, including Congressman Adam Schiff, uh, which was a big honor. So thanks for mentioning that. Uh, I guess it's a time that we all have to be activists if we want to see change. There's just no other option, I except for you. You're not you're going above and beyond that. Very courageous to uh, run for office uh, in uh, considering what it takes to just run for office these days. Uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you around, Vic. Pl- pl- honor for me to be here with you. Thanks for all, all that you do as well. Yeah, take care. Well, that was my interview with uh, Jirai Ratavosian, candidate for the House, District 30. Uh, thank you, Jirai, for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. Uh, Good luck to you, and I hope to chat with you again soon. The Blunt Post with Vic. Hello, dear friends of KPFK. My husband, Blaise Bonpain, and I became supporters and contributors to KPFK in 1969. All of this startling and non-startling historical events that have happened since then, and there were so many, made us constantly go to KPFK so we would be better informed and activated. So many times we said, we need KPFK more than ever, and we always did rely on them. Today, more than ever, ever, we need KPFK. We all know that, and we all must do everything we can to keep KPFK alive and vital. Blaze would look down on us with his smile as we do so. Thank you, Teresa Bonpain. This is Stanley Clark, 
Free Speech Radio can't survive without your generous support. Become a KPFK sustaining member now by pledging $1 a day at kpfk.org. Become a sustaining member. Your donation is tax deductible and membership has its privileges. I am a member, so join me, Stanley Clark, in keeping independent radio alive. Donate to KPFK at kpfk.org and do it today. Post with Vic. Allison Margolin, a Columbia University and Harvard Law graduate, is regarded as one of the premier attorneys in the cannabis industry. Her new book is titled Just Dope, A Leading Attorney's Personal Journey Inside the War on Drugs. It's just that. Allison has successfully litigated several high-profile cases, including defending the rights of the Hmong people to water in California which has affected state policy. Good morning, Allison. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? I'm good. I really appreciate being on your show. Thank you. Well, likewise, um, I'm uh, I'm sort of a, I guess I'm a novice in the cannabis uh, world. Um, so it's, you know, this, this show is just as much for me to learn and uh, hear your wisdom and such. So I'm very interested. My first question, and I will qualify it, where are we when it comes to the state of cannabis laws and freedom, if you will, in the US and regionally and locally? Now, compare that, for example, to LGBTQ rights, where we made huge headways um, since you know, Stonewall, and then during the, the Obama administration, we were able to uh, overturn Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Mar- you know, Defense of Marriage Act and get marriage equality. And then after Trump, there's been a war on LGBTQ again, and it's intensified recently, especially with trans. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the atrocious place that abortion rights are, Roe versus Wade, an unfathomable thing that right. happened, the overturn. So Considering what I just said, where are we with cannabis right now as we speak? So interestingly enough, cannabis in the same realm as um, LGBTQ rights and in the same realm as what we were just discussing has still has not been recognized as a fundamental right. It has not been recognized, any of these things, as an inalienable right, as a right that comes before our ability to exercise our bill of rights. That has not happened yet. The state of cannabis law, and we'll go we'll go from the federal to the state to the local. And I'll do like a geographic discussion. So on the federal level, cannabis is still what's called the schedule one drug. And what that means is there are five schedules of drugs under the federal law, one through five. One are the type of drugs that still cannot be prescribed. And cannabis is, strangely enough, still on that schedule where it cannot be prescribed. That's why in states like California, for example, and other states where marijuana is allowed for, let's say, medical purposes, um, it's called a recommendation, not a prescription, uh, because there's no such thing as a prescription. Under the federal law, there is a defense if someone is charged with a marijuana crime and there are doing it for strictly medical purposes, and they are obeying the medical marijuana laws of that state. However, 
under the federal law, there still is no defense if you are participating in activities that are legal under state law, but are not medical marijuana. So if someone's doing a recreational grow for recreational purposes, though it's being licensed, they still can actually be prosecuted under the federal law. That being said, the state of cannabis is been going in terms of the rights and in terms of legalization has continued to progress in the state legislatures. Um, even during Trump, even uh, and during the Biden administration, and even with the current U.S. Supreme Court. But the difference, I think, is that the U.S. Supreme Court has actually not taken cert on any marijuana cases and has fortunately, I think, in a certain sense, not had the opportunity to decide issues that are essential to this issue. For example, is marijuana a fundamental right? Instead, when the U.S. Supreme Court has had the opportunity to take cases such as when Colorado sued, um, I think it was the case, the states surrounding Colorado were suing Colorado regarding their recreational licensing. The U.S. Supreme Court actually didn't take cert on that case. So the U.S. Supreme Court has very, let's say, uh, delicately declined any of these cannabis cases and allowed these dual laws to exist, meaning that the federal law, which still doesn't allow really technically for anything, but there's a defense based on legislative statute for medical. And then there's state laws wherein um, more than 40 states, there's laws on the books relating to either medical, cannabis, or recreational. Now, the federal law is generally not used very often these days for, and I haven't seen it in the last several years at all, for those actors that are acting in compliance with even recreational you know, cannabis law. So there's a policy that if you if you're in a state that has a robust legalization system and you're following that regime, there's a policy that you won't get um, in trouble. Now, alongside the federal law, we have these state laws, in some instances, allowing recreational cannabis, under instances, allowing only medical. But the trend that I think is very interesting when you're looking at this from a rights perspective is that the southern states that have legalized, like Oklahoma, Louisiana, Missouri about to, they have not done what California has done, which is that they have not decriminalized. So you have laws in the, in the South, you have legalization, but if you're not participating in that regime under state law, you can still get 20 to life, 10 to life. In California, the first, we tried to pass legalization in Prop 19, which was about 10 years ago. And our first effort did not include decriminalization. It didn't include um, so the social equity program, which is California's program, and it's also been adopted in New Jersey and New York, which basically gives benefits to people who were criminalized before licensing. So you see that in California, you see it in progressive states, but you still see the same draconian laws that always existed in the southern states. So they have continued to have a dual system of, uh, you know, the people involved in the business now are okay as long as they're licensed, and the people who used to be or the people who are coming from the criminal background still are still in the same horrible position that they were before. So that's kind of like the federal level, the state level. Then we have the local. So in California, in order to pass licensing, there was trades basically, of course, like any legislation, trades made. And one of the trades, the biggest trade that's affecting the whole industry that was made was one where the local governments in California got the opportunity to control whether or not one commercial cannabis existed in their locality. And two, um, they got to decide 
completely whether or not to even allow people to participate in this regime. So at this point, we have 56% of our counties that have still criminalized all sorts, all commercial cannabis, including retail. And in order to try to help the industry, uh, the state of California has actually just given out grants to jurisdictions who want to do retail storefront. So we have the federal law, we have the state laws, and then we have the local laws that dictate if there can be commercial cannabis, what kind of what kind of activities there will be allowed, as well as what the zoning is going to be and where it's allowed, in what locations, how far from a school. Mm-hmm. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with cannabis attorney Allison Margolin. Where does L.A. County stand? Well, this is the craziest thing. L.A. County. So when we talk about the cities and counties, something I didn't learn until I was doing licensing law. L.A. County, we talk about that's the unincorporated parts of L.A. County. Right. Mm-hmm. L.A. City is a city in there's 80 cities in L.A. County. Correct. So the unincorporated parts of L.A. County have no commercial cannabis regime at all. They were like about in 2018, there was a board of supervisors intended to pass um, laws to allow retail. Hasn't happened yet at all. So technically in the unincorporated areas of Los Angeles, there's actually no legal commercial cannabis. And unfortunately on the local levels, and this is something that we've seen historically, like with pro during prohibition me, time. Sorry, let me yeah. stop you there. Yeah. Cause I want to yeah. make sure I ask all the right questions. Of course. So yeah. North, North Hollywood or studio city. Those are unincorporated. They're not cities that are on their own, but yet I've seen cannabis stores. How do they? Okay, so, yeah. Studio city is actually a community area in the city of Los Angeles. So Los Angeles city is comprised of 36 community plan areas. And Studio City is a is in the city of Los Angeles. So in the city of Los Angeles, there is licensing for all activities, um, except for volatile manufacturing. So in the city of Los Angeles, we have retail storefronts, uh, cultivation, manufacturing of hashish, wholesale, transportation, oh, and retail storefronts. So incorporated would be like Acton, which is on the way to Palmdale, which is L.A. Yeah. County, but it's not yeah. L.A. City. Okay. Right. I got gotcha. you. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. So you mentioned something about uh, it's a good thing that the Supreme Court hasn't really uh, reviewed a case like this. Would it I mean, considering the makeup of the Supreme Court, I'm assuming that it would not be a good thing for the Supreme Court to take on a high profile case. Am I correct? I yeah. Well, it depends. It depends on the way in which it reaches the Supreme Court and what the issues that are involved are, Um, because a cannabis quote case can reach the Supreme Court through, let's say, you know, a challenge to its nature as interstate commerce, mm-hmm. which brings about federal jurisdiction. It can occur through arguing that cannabis is a fundamental right. And I think on that area, it's good that that hasn't been brought to the Supreme Court again, because um, as we've seen, I think like in even last week in the Navajo case, and again with the LGBTQ case this week um, that came down, I think today actually, Mm-hmm. The concept of what are considered to be inalienable and fundamental rights, in my opinion, is narrowing. So right. if, if that's the issue that came across, that would be a problem. Now, if it was an issue rechallenging cannabis as an, as interstate commerce, and it was a state and that which has been challenged before and the and the Supreme Court in 2002 decided that cannabis is considered interstate commerce, thereby giving rise to federal jurisdiction. If that came back to the court, 
I mean, there might be a chance that if it's that in that realm, because of the nature of the U.S. Supreme Court right now, and, you know, quite a few justices are into the idea of state rights, maybe, right. you know, maybe things would go an okay direction. Um, so it depends. Now, if there's a challenge, let's say, on the third hand to the unconstitutionally, the, the constitutionality of whether or not cannabis still, you know, belongs in Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substances Act, that I don't, you know, it'd be hard to know where the Supreme Court would go, but I don't see the Supreme Court, given its nature, going out further than any other court has and deciding that it's irrational. Generally, there's a lot of deference by this Supreme Court to, you know, what the legislature does. Other than things like today, of course, where the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Biden's ability to forgive loans. Um, so it depends, I guess, That's on the vehicle it makes it to the U.S. Supreme Court. But at the moment, we're best off, I think, in this at least as so long as the government has a policy of not getting involved. But of course, yeah. people who are doing, you know, people who are, and I've had a case like this, people who are doing some things that are legal and some things that are illegal in the cannabis world are still subject to federal mandatory minimums of 10 years to life. So, you know, of course, the best, the best, the best thing that could happen would be that the attorney general or Congress descheduled cannabis. I mean, that would be the mm. best scenario. I mean this is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with cannabis attorney, Allison Margolin. Let me ask you this. So um, I've heard in the past that uh, the push for uh, people who have, who have like late-term HIV or full-blown AIDS and how much cannabis helped them uh, that push and that lobbying, uh, if you will, was uh, very instrumental in getting the the whole cannabis movement going. Uh, what do you think about that? Oh, I think it's 100% correct. So basically what happened was in the late 80s, early 90s, um, there was a huge push um, amongst commu you know, communities who supported people who had AIDS to allow for the medical use of cannabis. And California became the first state in 1996 as a result of those efforts and people like Dennis Perone and AIDS activists, mm -hmm. without whom it would ever get passed. That's how the first medical marijuana law passed in California, no doubt. And actually, even before that law passed, in places like San Francisco, the police department tolerated dispensaries. So I actually went when I was like, 17, 18 years old with my dad to Dennis Perone's dispensary in San Francisco in 1994, two oh. years yeah, before it was passed. And it was the most beautiful three-story dispensary with a bakery, with um, an area for people to play instruments. And then the bottom floor was like the weed you know, area. And uh, the San Francisco Police Department had a police officer outside monitoring it. So Without the push, and it was without without the push of the AIDS community, there never there wouldn't probably there still may not be medical marijuana at this point. Um, now, let let me ask you this: um, Is it fair to say, or is it correct to say that California is the most liberal state with cannabis? I think it, it would definitely. I think it's Colorado. correct. Because, no, I think it's I mean, I would say California. Um, I don't, and I'd have to look at. I I know that in New Jersey and in New York. There also is an effort to, there has been an effort to decriminalize possession, mm -hmm. but I don't know of any other state where you can sell any number of pounds of marijuana, any number, grow any quantity, and you can't really be charged with more than a misdemeanor offense justly. Now, 
when I say justly, I'm like right here. We're in Siskiyou County, for example. Um, they charge, you know, and I would say due to, I would say racism in the district attorney's office, or you might say, and, you know, let's say some, and I wouldn't say it applies to everybody, but there's, you know, one particular district attorney, deputy district attorney um, who is filing cases, felony cases, seeming to be at a higher rate against Asian Americans than she is filing um, the same against white Americans. And you can still technically charge a felony for some marijuana cases that involve out-of-state transportation. And there's a couple loopholes in the law where if you have a district attorney who's trying to be crafty, they still come up with felony charges. But I've never had, after the after cannabis has been legalized and after decriminalization, I've never had a prosecutor be successful in charging um, a felony for actually any marijuana case in state court. Um, even where it's like someone's bringing 20 pounds on the airplane, depending on what airport, you can generally negotiate for them. Sometimes dismissals, sometimes misdemeanors, but I don't think there's any state that has the breadth of decriminalization that California does. Allison, are you taking any more clients? Can people reach oh, you? Oh, yes, of course. Yes, and yes. They can what's your me, website? Uh, How can they reach well, you? My website actually is under construction. It's allisonmargolan.com. The reason it is is because I'm trying to update it to comply with the Americans for Disabilities Act. Right. But you can call me or email me. Look up my profile on the State Bar website. Um, okay. That's the easiest thing. You can Google me. But yeah, look me up, Allison Margolan. And you'll see, I have a Wikipedia page I wrote myself. So <laughs> nice. Yeah. I love it. Well, yeah, thank you for criminal cases. So thank you so much. No, thank you for all the wisdom. This was very interesting, informative for me. Uh, I truly appreciate it. Uh, good luck to you and uh, hope to chat with you again soon. Thank you so much for having me, Vic. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera without whom this show would not be possible. And KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami. The Blunt Post with Vic.